Hi, I'm Peter Coyle, the director of the Montclair Public Library, and you're listening to this month's edition of Check Us Out, the podcast from the Montclair Public Library. In December, we're going to have lots of things happening. In this episode, Maurice will share information about three special programs that are happening this month. Molly is going to discuss another program on essential oils that's free. And she's going to discuss our Open Book, Open Mind author series. We have Alice Hoffman coming in December and another one in January. And don't forget to stay tuned for information about book discussion that follows Alice Hoffman's Open Book, Open Mind event. Ken's going to talk about books, adult crime, and memoirs that are coming out in December. And Kirsten will share some about young adult books. Adrian is going to give us a small preview of The Book of Night Women, and Alex will interview a local author, Harvey Ariton, on his new book, Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Welcome again. This is Maurice from the Adult School Department. And Molly from the Adult Services Department. We're going to uh, discuss our programming plans for December, I guess programming adventures for December. We're closing out the year, and we got real, we have some things going on that we're really excited about. I can start with the adult school. Uh, we're rounding out December with three special classes, you know, f- to lead out the year. Leading off is our design and color instructor, March Cooperman, who will be who will return, I should say, on December first. She'll be leading color theory for everyone, an online primer that will discuss the three basic elements of color and how to successfully apply it in you know into your artwork, those who are artists, or interior, interior design, or, you know, home improvement plans, talk about paying your home, arranging furniture. She has ex- experience and expertise in dealing with both those areas, both the creative uh, arena as well as the applied arena. And on a musical note, we're going to be saluting the legacy of John Lennon, who would have turned 80 this year, has not, has life not been cut tragically short. We'll be offering John Lennon, his life and legacy on Wednesday, December 2nd at 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. And then we'll be wrapping up the year on a high note with Dorothea Lang, Beyond Photojournalism on Tuesday, December 8th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Our photography instructor, Joanna Matlock, will discuss the enduring images of Lang, one of the most profound and impactful American documentary photographers. And she'll go through the uh, pictures that are mo- that she's most famous for, as well as photographs that have been uh, that have been overlooked, but are nevertheless very important. You know, she's a very important documentarian of American life and images. I would say the foremost, in my opinion. So, we look yeah. forward to um, all three of these programs to round out the month of December. That sounds great. We have a few things coming up in early December, so they may have already passed by the time our dear listeners hear this. But I'll mention them anyway just as a taste of what we do and just to get a sense of what we do here at the library. We have an essential oils program on December 2nd at 1230. Jen Farino, who has done a couple other programs about essential oils is coming back. It's just an intro to what they are and also some, she's gonna share some DIY gift ideas. So you can make, you can use them to make gifts this holiday season. I think it'll be fun. And then on December 6th, we have Alice Hoffman in conversation with Elizabeth Egan about Alice Hoffman's new book, Magic Lessons. That's part of our Open Book, Open Mind author series. And that is a ticketed event. There's two ticket options. You can purchase an $11 just entry ticket just to get into the event. Um, and Or you can purchase um, 
full price ticket, which is gives you the, also a copy of the book. And you can even, if you, you're not sure, you can do the $11 ticket and then um, within a certain time frame, you could actually apply that um, to a purchase of the book at Watch Home Booksellers. So you've got options. Um, I think it's gonna be a great event. We'll also do a book club uh, as part of that. After the event, we'll do a book discussion. Alice will not be at the book discussion. She will just be at the talk, but I think both are gonna be great. And I also, I wanted to just plug something for January just to save the date. We are going to have Anne Patchett as part of Open Book, Open Mind. She's gonna talk about her book, The Dutch House. That's gonna be a really great event too. And we've got a lot to look forward to in 2021. And I'm excited to share more as we do more podcast episodes. Those were exciting, some heavy hitters. Alice I know, and we also have Isabel Wilkerson coming <laughs> in February. And it's just like, wow, the hits just what keep coming. Hit? Like we just get keep getting these amazing people. I'm so excited. Um, we had a great fall season, great spring season, even when we had to pivot to virtual. So great things are happening. Yeah, just go to show too. Even though we're going online, you know, there's still we're still programming exciting programs and you know exciting opportunities for our patrons, mm -hmm. whether it's physical or online. We're online for the season, but you know, great programs continue to happen here. So, yeah, more, I don't know about you guys, but we're also reaching farther than New Jersey now. Like we got, we had people much. from France and England and other states across the country, and like people tuning into these these events. So it's. Um, that's been fun to just kind of get a sense of, of how wide our reach is. It's been cool to, to expand our audience because we love, everyone's welcome here, whether it's virtual or in person. Sure, sure. we've experienced so. the same thing. Great outreach, people reaching out from other states, Montclair expats and others. There's also <laughs> a lot of you know, Montclair residents who moved on to other places for different parts of their life, but you know they're reaching back and uh, taking part of our classes from nice. you know from you know Maine or New York or the West Coast or down south. So it's really exciting, you know. And yeah, so you know it's rare, like you said, we welcome anyone onto our virtual platform. So you know, regardless of their geographic location. So and anyone in uh, person if they're willing to make the trip. Sure. When in-person <laughs> programs resume. <laughs> always welcome. Um, all right. Well, that's kind of it for me, Maurice. Do you have anything else to add? No, just to thank everyone. You know, it's been a tough year for all of us. You know, so we thank the patrons who have stuck with us through this period of time, you know, who have um, engaged in our programs and, uh, you know, contributed to the library or to the adult school or to adult services. Um, we wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season and new year. Well said. Happy holidays, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Hi, this is Ken. December is generally a quiet month for publishing. Most of the big holiday giving titles are released in the fall, but there are a few upcoming and recent titles that I haven't covered here, so let's take a look at some of them. Personally, I'm not a big fan of true crime books. My thought is that there are enough bad things in the world without me digging deeper into them. However, once in a while, a story comes out that piques my interest. The story behind We Keep the Dead Close by Becky Cooper is particularly interesting. Cooper was a student at Harvard when she heard an often repeated story about a student who was murdered in 1969. She spent 10 years investigating the story and, while the whispers about the murder mainly turned out to be false, the implication that Harvard used its power to keep the story quiet are true. The book is as much about the institution and its history as it is about the crime. My next title is not a nonfiction book. It's not even really about a crime, but it is based on a true story that had largely been forgotten. In 1926, 
famed author Agatha Christie mysteriously disappeared for 11 days. What happened during that period has been a matter of conjecture, but Marie Benedict has written a novel called The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, which puts a fictional spin on this incident and offers a glimpse into the private life of a perennially popular writer. One last crime story before I move on. Tana French is one of my favorite contemporary crime writers. Her Dublin Murder Squad series has been extremely popular since it began with In the Woods. Her new novel is a departure from that series, but has much of the dark tone as well as the Irish setting of her other work. The Searcher is about a Chicago cop who moves to Ireland hoping for a quiet retirement. However, the search for a missing local boy and the layers of small-town Irish society that it uncovers show that there is no escape from darkness, even in the most bucolic of settings. Moving on to memoirs, there are two which recently came out that I can't wait to dig into. Along with many people, I've always liked the work of Michael J. Fox, and his first memoir, Lucky Man, was a very honest, enjoyable read. His new book is called No Time Like the Future, An Optimist Considers Mortality. Since Fox and I are about the same age, I am curious about his thoughts on facing the future in one's late 50s. Certainly his outlook will be colored by his long struggle with Parkinson's disease, but his honesty about dealing with life struggles are somewhat universal based on his earlier writings. I'm only disappointed that his condition has led to his recent retirement from acting, as he's always been a joy to watch perform. Last is a book called This Is Not My Memoir by Andre Gregory. Gregory is the titular Andre from Louis Mal's brilliant film My Dinner with Andre, where Gregory and his friend Wallace Shawn spend a meal together talking about life, art, and the way things interact. I remember saying when I first saw it that it was the first film that made me think the way a book makes me think. Well, now we finally get a book from Andre Gregory. Maybe it will make me realize how closely his thoughts from the movie are to the way he writes. Whether he's working in theater, on screen, or on the page, he is always an interesting human being. That's all for this month. I hope you all get lots of great books for the holidays. Take care. Hi, everybody. It's Teen Services Librarian Kirsten, back with some more book recommendations for you. Everything I'm recommending today came out in November 2020. It's available as an ebook through our OverDrive platform, and you can check it out on your Montclair Library card. So first up, we have Super Fake Love Song by David Yoon. This new musically tinged romantic comedy follows a tale of slightly mistaken identity. When our main character, Sunny Day, meets his dream girl, Cyrus So, he can't get over how cool and confident she is. When she mistakes his rock music-obsessed older brother's room for his, he rules with it, creating an entire persona in which he's the front man of a rock band. This eventually culminates in convincing his friends to create a rock band with him. Fake, I should mention. Uh, but will they be able to actually pull off a concert when Cyrus says she wants to see them live? Perfect for fans of John Green and Jenny Han, this new novel is sure to entertain, even if Sunny can't. Our next title, These Violet Delights, by Chloe Gong, is a reimagining of Romeo and Juliet set between two warring criminal factions in 1920s Shanghai with a supernatural monster twist. Juliet Kai is a former flapper who decides to resume her role as the heir to the Scarlet Gang. Her first love, current enemy, is Roma Montagov, heir to the powerful White Flowers faction. The two organizations are constantly making moves against each other, but when a mysterious illness linked to a strange river creature begins to afflict members on both sides with a madness culminating in violence, Julia and Roma realize they must team up to save their families, their city, and themselves. Next, we have The Enigma Game by Elizabeth Wine, author of Codename Verity. This new novel is set during World War II, much like her previous works, and features a few recurring characters from Wine's other novels. The main character, however, is a new voice. 
15-year-old Louisa Adair is caring for an elderly German woman in a small town in Scotland in 1940, not long after her parents were killed by enemy forces. Though at first she feels powerless and unable to help the war effort from her remote location, a set of circumstances soon leads her to discover an Enigma machine capable of translating German code. Though this puts her and her friends in a dangerous position, Louisa knows it could also change the course of the war. A must-read for fans of Elizabeth Wine's other novels, as well as anyone interested in World War II-era stories. Finally, we have Love and Olives by Jenna Evans-Welch. If you're looking for a fun, light romantic escape with plenty of culinary inspiration, Love and Olives is for you. When Evie's estranged father, Nico, asks her to come to Greece to help out with his National Geographic-funded documentary about his theories on the lost city of Atlantis, she's initially reluctant. However, at her mother's urging, she eventually takes him up on his offer and joins him in Santorini. Though things on the film shoot are not quite what Evie was expecting, she begins a summer romance with the young production assistant and begins to embrace the natural beauty of her surroundings. To add a note of mystery to the plot, as Nico's work on the documentary deepens, Evie begins to realize there might be more to his preoccupation with Atlantis than she initially thought. It's perfect for readers who want a little romance and mystery and need a bit of escapism. Thanks for joining me again. I'll have more titles for you next month. Happy reading! Hi everyone, it's Adrienne again, and today I'm going to be talking about The Book of Night Women by Marlon James. The protagonist in this story is a mulatto girl named Lilith. She's born into slavery in the late 18th century Jamaica. And I'm fascinated by this book because this coming of age concept is illuminating the horrifying effects of slavery in a unique way that I, I've not experienced. I've, I've, I've never seen it done this way before. And what I'm talking about is it's very commonly known the difficulties in being a teenage girl. Things like dealing with growing pains of puberty, sexual awakening, like your mood swings and self-discovery, asserting your independence, trying to convince the world to see you as a woman. Imagine all of these things happening while the world only you know is one of complete oppression and a total lack of freedom and positive influence. Like there's nothing in this world that suits her. How would a young girl handle being touched with kindness when all she knows is being touched with violence? How does a young girl handle being of mixed race, especially during a time when race defines everything. This is the fascinating part of watching the process of Lilith grow from a girl to a self-aware woman throughout this entire book. And this concept of coming of age as a slave is something that I feel like no one has ever touched. I remember watching and reading the book, uh, Someone Knows My Name, and, and it came close to this, but not quite. It was powerful the way that Marlon James depicted this horrifying effect of slavery in a, a, a unique way that, again, I've never seen before. One of the other things is I was pleasantly surprised to see how hyper-feminist the story is. There are only a couple of main male characters and almost no primary male slave characters. It's kind of a breath of fresh air as there are hardly any strong female characters in classic slave narratives. And here, the entire revolt plot is planned by strong women all over the colony. They don't involve men because they don't believe that men have enough rational brain power to really handle what they're trying to accomplish. Here, it's the women that are totally 
bad. They are rock stars. They are calling the shots, packing muskets, machetes, OB spells, and it always feels genuine. The cherry on top, though, is Marlon James and his skill for writing. It's like he's a natural, and the prose is epic and and, and poetic and, and probably the most challenging of all his novels. I'm not going to go into great detail about the book because there's so many layers here. But one of the things I want to highlight is the names of the female slaves in the Book of Night Women, they bear a strong significance. Like Lilith herself, the definition of Lilith is belonging to the night or female night being. And this has a lot to do with who she is and how she's portrayed in this book. Homer as well. There are so many names and their meanings that tie into the story. Very clever, Marlon. Very, very clever. This is Adrian of Montclair Public Library, and we've been discussing The Book of Night Women by Marlon James. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Check Us Out podcast. I'm Alex, an adult services librarian here at Montclair Public Library, and I have a special guest today, very pleased to introduce Mr. Harvey Ayrton to the Check Us Out podcast. Harvey, how you doing? I'm good, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. Really, really appreciate it. And for the listeners out there who aren't too sure about who Harvey is, I do have a pretty impressive list of credentials I'm going to read off uh, here. Harvey, I hope you don't get too embarrassed. So just sit tight. Harvey, we're here to talk about your book, Our Last Season, a writer a fan of friendship, but you do have some other books that we actually have here in the Montclair Public Library that you guys can check out if you're really interested. We have Elevated, The Global Rise of the NBA by yourself and the staff of the New York Times. I believe you edited and annotated that one. We have Driving Mr. Yogi, Yogi Berra, Ron Guidry, and The Baseball's Greatest Gift. We also have When the Garden Was Eden, Clyde, The Captain, Dollar Bill, and The Glory Days of the Old Knicks. We have your novel here, Cold Type. So if you guys want a little fiction, check that out. Alive and Kicking, When Soccer Moms Take the Field and Change Their Lives Forever. Crashing the Borders, How Basketball Won the World and Lost Its Soul at Home. The Selling of the Green, The Financial Rise and Moral Decline of the Boston Celtics. And Money Players, Days and Nights Inside the New NBA by Yourself. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to mispronounce your co-author's names on this. Armin Ketian and Martin Armin Dardis. Armin Ketian, yes. Armin, oh, I'm so close. I'm sorry, Armin. I hope you don't get too offended. Besides those books that we have here for you, you also have quite a decorated career as a sports journalist. You were nominated by the Times for a Pulitzer Prize in 94. You were named 1998 Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association. You won first place in 1994 for Best News Story from the Associated Press Sports Editions. And in 2017, you're the recipient of the Kurt Gowdy awarded at the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. So, Harvey, congratulations. It's all very impressive. Thank you. I like to thank my uh, 2017 Kurt Gowdy Award. I, I like to write some fiction about that, that I actually got in as a, as a basketball player from my days as a five foot eight erratic point guard in Staten Island. But um, people see right through that. So, when and why did you move to Montclair? Well, we were living, uh, my wife and I and our, our first son, his name is also Alex, we're, uh, we're living in uh, downtown Brooklyn. It's a great and, name. Uh, in a three-floor walk-up. She was pregnant with our second son, Charlie, so it was time for more space, 
fewer steps a backyard and um, good school. So we, uh, we had a couple of good friends. In fact, my co-author on the first book I ever wrote, Selling of the Green, is Philip Bondi, who also was a Montclair resident and a longtime colleague at the Daily News and the New York Times. He, he was already living out here, as was Dave Kaplan, a, a former editor at the Daily News, who went on to become the director of the Yogi Berra Museum. They were already out here, so it seemed like a nice place and a logical place to lay some roots for our kids. Oh, very nice. So you had some trusted friends give you good reviews, huh? Yeah, yeah. And of course, the, cozy, the old Cozy Inn Diner. That was also an attraction, fortunately, no longer here. You know, Montclair seemed like a good place to uh, come for the long haul. Right. And that's funny that you actually, you mentioned um, a place to, to go and have a nice meal because that was going to lead into my next question. Montclair, I'm sure you know this, Montclair has dozens and dozens and dozens of restaurants, uh, more restaurants you can shake a stick at. So I got to ask you, what is your favorite local eatery to patronize? Well, um, I think a lot, what a lot of people would say is, you know, the old Giotto on Midland Avenue that is now La Rocca, uh, La Rocca. Um, that's always been one of our favorites. I've been a longtime patron of the uh, Sandwich Theory on Valley Road, formerly known as the cheese shop and often still referred to as the cheese shop by me and, and uh, a lot of my friends who just go in there most, who had gone in there most mornings, you know, just sort of to hang, have coffee and uh, socialize before we started our work days. And they were anticipating a move across the street or up the street to the new place called Mercado. I'm hoping that it works out for him, the owner, Marcelo, in this pandemic. The Ethiopian place on uh, Bloomfield Avenue has been a long time staple of ours. Just, you know, there's always been restaurants that have come and gone. You know, you develop your favorites as you go, as you go along. You know, uh, Uncle Momo's is, is been a, has been a frequent stop for us in recent years up on Upper Bloomfield. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's about it when we, uh, we go out. Although I'm sure if I gave it some more time, others would come to mind. Have you ever been to, uh, to Stuffed over on uh, Valley? Avis, the burger place? That's the one in the, uh, in the little strip mall. Yeah, I mean, that's actually owned by, I believe, a young man named Danny Campius, who, um, is a high, who was a schoolmate and soccer teammate of my older son. So we know the family quite well. Well, it's very nice. If you can, you got to give my respects to Dan because they do a very good burger over there. I'm a big fan. They do. They do. do you like using uh, the Montclair Public Library? And if you do, what's your favorite ways? Because I know we do offer a lot of services here. Well, mainly, I, I'm, I've always been comfortable around libraries. Even when I was a young kid, really I developed my love of reading uh, at a public library in Staten Island, which is a few blocks from. I grew up in an apartment. It tended to be, you know, crowd feel crowded and noisy. Sure. Uh, the library, the public library, was my home away from home. It's where I discovered the early sports books that got me acclimated to that special place you go when you're, you know, when you're by yourself with a good book. I used to go there initially to do my homework, just, you know, to get a quiet space. So uh, what I love about the Montclair Public Library is that it is one of the places, you know, Montclair has these high ideals about uh, integration and, you know, economic integration, racial integration. Uh, the the public library is one of those places and special places in town where that actually happens. You know, there, there are a few places in town, uh, whether it's the high school, whether are the sports fields, uh, where you do feel the community coming together. YMCA is another one. 
So I've always felt like the, the, the Montclair Public Library was, always, was something to always rally around, fund well, make sure things are wor in good working order and the staff is happy, donate to, because um, again, it's one of those places in town where the ideals actually meet the reality. Harvey, that answer warms my little heart. Um, you mentioned you were a big fan of sports books when you were a kid. Was, would you say that was mainly your, your favorite type of uh, reading material or did you get into the big novels or like comic books or maybe, maybe some poetry? I was actually, yeah, sports books, I would say, were the first thing. I mean, I was a sports-minded kid growing up in a mm -hmm. sports-minded environment. Um, I did not have a strong academic background at home coming from my parents who were, you know, blue-collar people. And so just the idea of being comfortable with reading uh, or getting comfortable with reading was really important for me in terms of my own educational development. And uh, Marvel Comics did actually play a fairly large role in that. Oh, sort cool. of reality-based approach that Marvel Comics took to its superheroes was something that attracted me. So I was an early reader of Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and all those characters that were drummed up by Stan Lee. And I used to rush to the new, rush to the, uh, the new store, uh, the candy store that carried comic books that would come out once a month and I would just grab about eight or nine off the rack. Uh, there were about 10 or 12 cents a piece back in those days. And I would rush back to my bedroom, lock the door, and uh, not be heard or seen for the next hour or so as I devoured those comic books. But that led to an interest in, you know, as I got closer to college and to reading more novels and, mm -hmm. and nonfiction. My older sister, when she got her first job, bought me a subscription to Sports Illustrated which would come every Thursday afternoon with the, with the mail. And of course it was, you know, the, uh, the standard glossy sports magazine with the best writing. And that was also a, an essential tool for me in terms of appreciating what good sports journalism could be. And I, you know, I began to read that religiously in you know, high school and on into college. There you go. So you had a bit of a, a varied appetite, a varied appetite of reading materials that eventually shaped you as a sports journalist. Absolutely. Very good. Well, that's, that's very healthy. So we're going to talk about your book. Um, and I mentioned it at the top of the show, our last season, a writer, a fan and a friendship. And I'm holding it up right now. Not that our listeners, to the podcast can see it. And I'm sure you know what it looks like, but I really did enjoy reading your book here it was very touching honestly and I do, I do just want to know what do you think was the most difficult or maybe even interesting part about writing this book as you know from reading it it's it's a sports book really only in that it it ex explores that thing that that connected Michelle Musler the, the more of the star of the book than I am even though it's a partial memoir what connected what introduced us and what connected us for many many years at Madison Square Garden was the game of professional basketball, which I covered roughly four decades for three different newspapers. And Michelle, as a fan, sitting in the first row behind the Knicks bench at Madison Square Garden for roughly 45 years. So that while that, you know, basketball is the connective theme, the book is really, you know, explores more significant transcendent issues like friendship, mentorship. And the one that um, probably intrigued me the most was the concept of aging 
and the ultimate surrender of the things by which we define ourselves, whether it be our work or our uh, avocational interests, uh, as it was for Michelle. That was something, you know, you reach a certain point in your career, as I did in 2016, when I left the full-time staff of the New York Times, and you naturally start to ask yourself, well, who am I now? And uh, so the opportunity to write this book uh, and explore that issue, among others, was something that was very attractive to me because quite frankly, you know, here I am four years removed from the staff of the Times, although I still contribute as a freelancer, and I am still writing, obviously, I just released a book, uh, I'm still struggling with that concept. And it's one that I think that, um, you know, whether it comes by natural choice, as it did for me, in terms of stepping away in 2016, or, you know, your company goes out of business, or you get laid off by some corporation, it's something that, you know, just about all of us will deal with at some point in our lives, you know, like, how do you transition into that professional afterlife? So that was something that was really an attraction for me to try to explore that. And of course, Michelle as my sort of life coach and career coach was someone who helped me deal with that. Throughout the book, and you, like you mentioned previously, it mostly is about your your friendship and mentorship with, with Michelle. And she seems like a, just an A1 person to have in your corner, really, really open to hearing what you have to say, always gives good feedback. Is that what you want people to know about Michelle? Or is there, is there a deeper lesson you'd like to import about her? Yeah, no, it's, it's one aspect, a crucial aspect of who she was as a human being, a, a person who literally reached out and touched people. You know, I joke about how she used to step up and fix Jeff Van Gundy's crooked collar when he came out before a game and just sit down without saying a word, which is in some ways symbolized who Michelle was behind the bench, a quiet but impactful presence there. Everybody knew her, the players, the coaches, the broadcasters, and of course, a lot of the sports writers. I wasn't the only one who had a good close friendship with her. I think mine probably was a little more enduring than others after they moved on. But no, Michelle was a fascinating person. You know, the the essence, the the reason why she even wound up in that first row seat was because as a young mother of five children in Stamford, Connecticut, her marriage crumbled, her husband left, uh, left her with five young kids to raise without much financial support. This was a woman who literally almost wound up on welfare and had to essentially from scratch launch a career to keep a roof over her children's head at a time when it wasn't easy for women to really make their way in corporate America. And not only did she do that, climbing from one human resources position to another for a variety of powerful companies like Pepsi and Xerox and Time Warner, she ultimately wound up with her own company where she traveled around the world, hired by companies like Procter & Gamble to essentially train corporate executives who were struggling in their positions, which, you know, in effect was why she was so important to me in terms of my own career crises. But this is a woman who really literally rebuilt her life and then her social life, which, you know, she felt she no longer fit in Stanford, Connecticut, in that suburban kind of housewife community. So she wound up reconstructing a social life for herself, you know, at Madison Square Garden, which she somehow, you know, uh, you know, it's still some, something of a mystery to me, uh, assimilated that world of young professional athletes and their wives and girlfriends and all the other principal people who wind up circling those, you know, the athletes, whether it be journalists or 
trainers and coaches. She became a force there. She was kind of like, I like to describe as the, the alter ego or flip side of Spike Lee, who was a very public Knicks fan, the face of Knicks fans, mm-hmm. sitting in that first row, what we call celebrity row, where he could really be seen and help with his branding for his film career. Michelle was situated in a more, I guess, in a more symbolic way behind her team. She was not often seen, but in that world, she was heard. And she had a tremendous impact on a lot of people's lives. Just from reading the book, it really seems like she did have a tremendous impact on folks' lives. And I'm glad you brought up her early years and um, as a single mother in Stanford, Connecticut, because I want to to quickly talk to you about the excerpts of the Christmas letters that she wrote that you shared in the book. They were really, really darkly funny. I'm, st- I'm still laughing about some of them. Was she always that, um, that poignant and funny or did it only come out in uh, her Christmas letters? Well, Alex, this was the interesting thing that through the years, I used to think, you know, Michelle was like sort of a, was a source for me behind the bench because she mm-hmm. knew so many people. First of all, she was sitting right there looking right into the huddles. So she became my eyes and ears pretty quickly and became a trusted source for a very young, insecure beat reporter that I was at the New York Post, which, of course, as we know, is a very competitive cutthroat, do anything for scoops kind of tabloid newspaper. So initially, from my standpoint, the friendship was kind of born out of self-interest. You know, this woman sits right behind the bench, you know, good person to know, right? Right. What I didn't know back then was that Michelle had long harbored her own dreams or fantasies of being a sports journalist. She was somehow the high school, the editor, the sports editor and reporter of her high school newspaper, which is a pretty neat trick back in the late 40s and early 50s, you know, for a woman. And she did harbor dreams of going into that industry, except there was no pathway for a female to become a sports journalist back then. One of the reasons why she was so attracted to friendships with people like myself was because she got to live vicariously through us. And what became apparent as I went through the Christmas letters, you know, and I used to receive them years ago through our friendship, but of course, mm-hmm. who's thinking, I need to save these for a book sometime down the line. But her daughter had them all, and she, um, one of her five children, sent them to me. And as I was reading through them, I realized, wow, she really was a good writer. She had this really sardon- sardonic sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, reading those letters and including them as sort of inserts or excerpts into the book established two things. One, that Michelle, you know, in a different time and place, really could have been a great sports journalist or journalist in general. And two, that it really provided insights into her life as she was living it way back in the 60s and 70s. You know, these are things that, you know, Michelle and I had many, many long conversations, and I recorded some of them over the last couple of years because we talked about the possibility of doing a book together, writer and fan, mentor and protege. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing that brings the greatest sense of clarity from the past than the words that were written exactly in the, you know, during the past, during those times, as opposed to her recalling what was going on in her life back then. So to have those Christmas letters that she sent out every year, except for she missed a, a year here and there, when she was going through, I think, you know, her painful divorce and 
and some depression, the fears of dealing with these five kids and how she was going to support them, it really brought to life that examination of her earlier days before I knew her. Right. I think it's safe to say that she was certainly a woman ahead of her time. And maybe in a different life, she could have been an award-winning sports journalist such as yourself easily. No question. In fact, I think, you know, Selena Roberts, who was a good friend of mine and was a colleague at the New York Times, was the first full-time Sports of the Times columnist at the Times. Other women, I'm thinking Claire Smith, for one, had filled in on occasion to write the column. But Selena, when she was given a column back in, uh, I want to say, the early 2000s, was the first full-time woman to write it. And in the book, as I'm writing, the last chapter is a letter to Michelle after her passing and in June of 2018, I'm not giving away the ending because I think it's fairly obvious when I thumb the title, it's our last season. She, uh, I even mentioned to, to Michelle that having read all of her Christmas letters, that it was clear to me that she could have been Selena Roberts in her day had the opportunity been there. I mean, we're just going to do this one wrap-up question. I'll, I'll let you go. Do you think you could tell us something about yourself that would surprise people that they may not expect from you? I guess I would have to say that um, from the time I was 10, 11, and this surprises people, given the, the, you know, the career that I chose and I guess my, based on my personality, is that I am an absolute Star Trek freak. I will watch any of the series. It's my pure escapism. And from the very first episode I saw back in the 60s with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, uh, I have watched every series since. I recently subscribed to CBS All Access to watch the uh, Jean-Luc Picard reboot and the new series that they also introduced a couple of years ago, Discovery. I, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I'm not really a scientific person, but I just love the whole sense of what happens and the, the whole notion of what, what will be in the future and the outer reaches of space. So I, I would say that's it. And generally people are surprised when I tell them that, you know, that uh, more than any other TV series that's popular on Netflix or whatever it is, it's whatever Star Trek series is on that I'm going to look at first and foremost. That is kind of surprising, but you know what? It kind of, it makes sense now I think about they being the Star Trek. My pop's a really big Star Trek fan too. So thank you for sharing that little tidbit, Harvey. And thank you for coming on the Check Us Out podcast. And all our listeners out there, you can go and get our last season, a writer, a fan of friendship at Montclair Public Library and at other Buckles libraries. And to everyone out there listening, live long and prosper. I can't do, yeah, I can't do the hand signal. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard indeed. Thanks for tuning into this month's edition of Check Us Out. As always, if you want more information about the things we've talked about, you can find them on our website, montclairlibrary.org. And remember, you can download our app, Search for Montclair Library on the Google Play or iTunes Store and download it today. You can also find more information about the Montclair Public Library Foundation and their annual appeal by visiting montclairplf.org. Their financial support helps the library in so many ways. If you can, visit their website to find out more. Thanks for joining us for the Montclair Public Library podcast, and we'll see you next month.